So it turns out that the mystical forces have become unstable. That explains so much. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Showtime, the 11th episode of season 7. Showtime aired on January 7th, 2003, and was written by David Fury, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by Michael Grossman, who is apparently not related to David Grossman, who directed last week's episode, Bring on the Night. Anyway, this is Michael Grossman's only episode of Buffy, but he did direct four episodes of Angel and one of my favorite episodes of Gilmore Girls, season four's In the Clamor and the Clangor. Season 7 is moving along, and while Showtime is a little more on the front burner than Bring on the Night, this soft, mushy potato middle of Season 7 doesn't have a lot of meat on the bone. That's like three food metaphors in one sentence. I blame Thanksgiving. All right, let's get into the weeds. In Showtime, more potentials find their way to Sunnydale, including Vi, played by Felicia Day. Oh, and Eve. Do we have some kind of plan? You know... Any kind of plan to keep us from dying? Spike is still being held captive and tortured by the First and the Turrican, holding on to his sanity by holding on to his belief in Buffy. She will come for me. No. I will. Giles and Anya get a demon to open a portal to a big all-seeing eye trapped in a metal cage, and instead of trying to, you know, free it, they ask it how they can defeat the First. What, am I talking to myself here? There's no way. Xander and Buffy go to collect a potential that arrived a few days before and make a terrible discovery. Eve. Eve, who's in our house? Back at the house, Andrew whines, while Dawn is awesome. I'm so alone. Maybe you shouldn't have killed your only friend. Buffy and Xander rush back to confront the first who has been masquerading as Eve, and the first buggers off, freaking out all of the potentials. Buffy, Willow, and Xander mind-meld a plan. I've got to slay the Neander vamp to get Spike out of that cave, but I need those girls to see me do it. I know just the place. When the Turricon attacks, Buffy leads the girls to a construction site where she proves that everything, even a badass uber vamp, can be killed. See? Dust. Just like the rest of them. With the Turricon gone, Buffy finds Spike and rescues him from the cave, bringing him back home to heal and to prepare for the fight. Showtime is a little more active than Bring on the Night was, but not by much. One of the more interesting notes here is the infiltration of the first into the enemy camp as sweet Southern Eve, who seeds fear and paranoia into the ranks at every opportunity. This is where the first does its best work, on the psychological battlefield, and it's these story turns that are always the darkest and the creepiest. We've introduced new potentials in Chloe, played by Lolaine, Rona, played by Indigo, and Vi, played by Buffyverse fan favorite Felicia Day. Now that we're filling out our ranks of potentials, their vulnerability and fear are raising the stakes, if you'll pardon that inevitable pun, and bringing a sense of chaos to Camp Sunnydale, which is nicely realized throughout the set design, which has the place boarded up like a skid row crack house. Meanwhile, we bring Andrew a little more into the fold, and his background narrativization of, well, everything, remains his most annoying and yet captivating character trait. 
Dawn has been relegated to beyond back burner status, but every moment we have with her is fantastic. And she just gets more and more badass as we go. Buffy said if you talked enough, I'm allowed to kill you. Not even. Even. We're finally doing with Dawn what we should have done all along, given her agency and competence. She may not be a fighter, but she's smart. And she's in the fight in whatever role she can fill. She's brave and she's tough, showing us what even the non-chosen Summers women are made of. Funny, you look a little uncomfortable. Or is it just me? Kennedy continues her unfathomable role as sexual predator during this episode, trying to bully Willow into the bed with her the same way she bullied her into sharing the room. And I can't help but be even more annoyed at this lesbian loophole we give her for this kind of unacceptable sexual aggression and intimidation. Because here's the thing. It may seem like a kindness to give Kennedy a pass for bad behavior because she's part of a group that's discriminated against, but it's actually just a Buffyverse sanctioned perpetuation of that discrimination. The pass that Kennedy gets on this behavior because she's a lesbian, it's dehumanizing. It puts forth the idea that lesbians are cute when they're predatory, and that the same rules and expectations of behavior don't apply to them that apply to everyone else. Giving Kennedy a pass on this because she's a lesbian is saying that we don't respect her, or Willow for that matter, enough to say that this is not okay. When we do that in the writing, we send a strong, implicit message about how the rules are different for lesbians, setting lesbians apart from everyone else. And it is that grouping of humans into categories that sets the stage for the vile things we as humans do to each other. Dehumanization starts with differentiation. This may seem a harmless form of that, but I would argue that there is no harmless form of that. This kind of thing is like the demon that hitched a ride with Buffy when she was resurrected. It had no corporeal form, and so she couldn't fight it until it was made corporeal. Same thing with this. We can't fight it until we can see it. So let's see it, recognize it for what it is, and reject it. The only part of the Kennedy-Willow stuff that I actually liked was when Kennedy was being cute about Willow's dark, scary magic, and Willow set her straight. Heard this voodoo once turned into the big scary. Big, scary willow. That's something I'd almost like to see. No, you wouldn't. Said almost. Kennedy's arrogant naivete needs to be confronted, and I'm glad that we do that. Then later in the episode, when we get a hint of Kennedy's competence during the fight with the Turrican, it starts to get us on the right track with this character. So I guess we can just hope that things get better from here. The eye sees not the future, only the truth of the now and before. We've all got that. It's called memory. Can you help us out with something a little bit more demony? The magical demonic oracle is something of an old trope, and one that's frequently used in the Buffyverse on both Buffy and Angel. But for some reason, this is the one that I stop and stumble at. There's an eye. In a metal cage, in a dark dimension slash internal vortex, just stuck there, waiting for people to come and ask it questions. What does it do during the rest of the time? Does it freelance for Sauron in the off-season? Doesn't it want to, you know, be freed? Shouldn't it be bartering for release? Also, if it knows everything and all you need is a little demon mojo to access it, wouldn't it have been a helpful resource all along? Okay, if there's anything I've learned from Season 7, it's don't ask too many questions. At least we've got someone else doing the expositional heavy lifting this week. Well, until we hand it right back to Giles. It's not because she died, it's, it's because she lives. Again. Buffy's not responsible for that. No. Willow and me, and Xander and Tara. We're the reason the first is here. The reason those girls were murdered. No, it's our fault. 
The world would have been better off if Buffy had just stayed dead. Now, the whole Bell Jocks's eye thing is a little weird and disturbing, but this note is a good one. Buffy died for a few minutes at the end of season one, and a new Slayer line was established, thus giving us two girls in all the world, blah, blah, blah. That didn't upset things. That didn't bring down the first. The second death, when she was gone for months and then resurrected, that threw the mystical forces into chaos. That blew the lid off of things. It's an interesting piece of world building. How did the second resurrection create instability when the first did not? Maybe it was because the first time another Slayer was called, but she apparently only gets that magic once. The second time she died, to the best of our knowledge, no new Slayer was called. Are the mystical forces thrown off by this event? A Slayer dies, but no new one shows up to take her place, and that creates mystical instability? I like this. It's interesting and chewy. I also love Anya's reaction here. We've been relegating Anya to her old role as the comedy mule, making with the wise ass while everyone else is freaking out. But here, for at least a moment, we have her realizing that the current apocalyptic state of things kind of lies on her shoulders, and on Willow's, and Xander's, and Tara's. There's a nice, if brief, moment of depth here. And I like it. Buffy? What's she doing? Just watch. It's showtime. The culmination of the episode-level conflict, the big Thunderdome fight with the Turrican, feels a bit theatrical considering the very high stakes here. We have a handful of untrained, frightened girls along with our regular band of Scoobies, and Andrew, facing down the Turrican and the Bringers. Xander almost gets decapitated, and this plan could have easily gotten half of our band of ragtag fighters super killed. In the end, we get Buffy confidently killing this thing as though it's nothing but a thing. When last week, it handed her ass, but good. We have a sense that it can't kill her, it won't, not until all the potentials have been slain, because Buffy's death would simply call another slayer. Except that it's kind of the very fact that Buffy's second death didn't call another Slayer that's the reason we're all here in the first place, right? Hell, I don't know. What bugs me about this is how incredibly out of control it all is. So many variables, so much risk, so much potential for disaster, and yet it all works out fine and the Turrican is defeated and all's well that ends well, I guess? But of course, my favorite part of the whole thing is the look on Spike's face when Buffy touches him and he realizes she's not the first. So much like the look on his face when he saw her again at the beginning of season six and realized that she wasn't the Buffy bot. James Marsters delivers that slow, wondrous dawning with such heartbreak and vulnerability that I don't really care about anything else in Showtime. I love this episode just because it gives me that. All right, that's it for today. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Ross, who supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show he wants. And he chose wisely. Thank you, Ross. And thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Pretty producer. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on season seven, episode 12, Potential. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.